Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to the latest news in science concerning COVID-19. Our guest is Dr. John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Schwartzberg. Good morning. Since we haven't had any uh, blockbuster headlines or new studies that caught my attention the last week, I, I thought it would be worth taking a couple minutes just to kind of take stock of where we're at. Uh, I, I spent some time last night combing through uh, what's left of the dashboards that try to convey uh, information about the state of COVID-19. And um, if I'm not mistaken, it looks pretty good. Uh, Hospitalizations are at a fairly low level, especially compared to a couple months ago. Sewage levels in this region all seem to be close to their pandemic lows. Deaths have dropped to a a very low rate and kind of reminded me that we haven't seen a new major variant of concern hit the book since Omicron, which at this point is a year and a half ago. Um, Am am I wrong to to start feeling a little sunny about the state of the pandemic? I think we all should. Um, You've pointed out the salient features to make that argument. We... I would add that we didn't have much of a surge in the winter. The last two winters prior to that were just devastating. Um, It's important to note, as you you did, that Omicron and all of its subvariants have been with us now for a year and a half. We've not seen that before. It looks like this virus is settling on Omicron, at least it has for the last year and a half. And the numbers continue to drop now. I was concerned earlier in the winter that the deaths weren't dropping, and that continued on until late winter. We just weren't seeing the deaths drop, but now in the last six or eight weeks, we've seen the deaths drop too. So, um, yes, it it um, it really does look good. <laughs> I'm gonna like knock on whatever wood I can get my hands close to because those also sound like famous last words. Um, I, I will say anecdotally, we're getting more questions than ever from people who've had COVID infections in their households and are wondering what to do about it. Uh, let me start with an email from Johanna who wrote over the weekend. She and her husband both got sick with COVID at the start of last month. Um, Her husband has been testing negative for five days now. She is still testing positive 21 days after her first positive test. And um, I I, I think her main question here, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a longer email, is if her husband's just recovered, is she still a threat to him? Does she have to keep isolating? Yeah. The, the 
it's unusual to see somebody testing positive 21 days unless you're immunocompromised. Um, that said, she, she does mention that she finished a round of chemo six months ago. Mm, that well, if she finished a round of chemo six months ago, she really should be handling the virus well. So, you know, everything in biology is a bell-shaped curve. And when we look at how long people test positive, most people are testing negative after an acute infection around five, six, seven, maybe eight days. And then they start to test negative. A lot of people are still positive at 10 days. We're seeing quite a few at 12 and 14. When you get out to 21 days, it's unusual to see people still testing positive, but we certainly do see it. So there's no reason to think, oh my God, what's wrong with me? What as a rule of thumb, um, in somebody who's otherwise in good health and is now asymptomatic, which I hope Johanna is, uh, then if she's testing, continues to test positive at day 10, 12, 14, uh, but is otherwise just fine, then I would just stop testing. In terms of does she represent a risk to her husband? Very unlikely. Uh, so for two reasons. One, it's very unlikely she's contagious, even though the test uh, is positive. And I'm assuming these are the rapid tests done at home. Yeah, the, home um, the other reason yep. is that he just got over COVID. His immune, he's, he's gotten a big booster. So he should be very well protected now uh, going into the next few months. So I think she not, need not worry about him. And as long as she's feeling well, I don't think she needs to worry about herself. What about other people, though? I mean, the, those home tests, my understanding is, is what they are testing is the actual presence of the, the antigen, the virus. If, if you're getting a positive line, doesn't mean you're a, a threat to, to, to pass it on to other people? Well, it certainly does early on in the infection. What the, these tests are looking for are pieces of the virus, um, as you said, antigens, but they're pieces of the virus. And so it's certainly possible for a virus to be, pieces of the virus to be present, but the entire intact virus that would be transmissible is not. So I don't think that... Um, just the presence of a positive test in an otherwise healthy person who's asymptomatic uh, means that that person's contagious when you're out this far. Now, if, 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 if she was saying that it's been seven or eight days, I would say, yeah, you really, I think that test is telling you you're likely contagious and be really careful the next few days. But when you're getting out as far as she is, I don't think so. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg. He is here to answer your questions about COVID. The phone number, if you'd like to call your question in live, 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008. Another question from the inbox on testing. This comes from Kathleen, who is in Rockingham County, Virginia. And uh, she and her spouse are both in okay health and about 69 years old and looking to expand their social activities this year. Um, her question is, she's thinking they'd like to have everyone do rapid tests before gatherings, and she's wondering if that will be more trouble than it's worth. Are, are the tests losing uh, usefulness over time? Are they any better than obvious symptoms at indicating someone has an infection. 
Sure. Well, let's take that last point first, and that is, are they any better than having symptoms? And the answer to that is yes, because we know that this virus, and this is one of its stealthy qualities, this virus can infect you, you're not yet symptomatic, and you still can transmit the virus to other people. And this can occur a day, sometimes even two days before you become symptomatic. So asymptomatic carriage is common, and asymptomatic carriers can transmit the virus. So we can't just count on symptoms. This is where the rapid test could be helpful. The the answer to her other question is, should we be using them when we get together with other people? This really falls under the category of your risk tolerance. How important it is, how is it for you to add some degree of assurance that you're not going to be with people who are infected with the virus? And if this is really important, and Nancy and her husband are 69, so they're at a little higher risk than other people, uh, because of the age, it may be more important to them, and that import may be greater than just the inconvenience of asking people, others, to do that before they come over. So that's a very personal decision. I think it, what it does is really it, it gives you another layer of safety when you're getting together with other people. Now, as the incidence of this virus decreases, as fewer and fewer people are getting infected, or at least are getting hospitalized. We don't know so much about infected. Uh, as fewer and fewer people are getting infected, the value of testing goes down as well. So this is, again, I think a very personal decision and uh, one that she and her husband just need to reconcile. Kathleen, I'll, I'll recite our advice on testing practices in case that's the route you go. Um, the tests are most useful the closer closer to the gathering you take them. <laughs> test can do a pretty good job of telling you whether you're infectious at the moment you take the test, but not a great job of telling you uh, whether you will be infectious 12 hours after. That's a really key point, right. Brian. Uh, one more question from the inbox on testing before we go to the phone lines at 1-800-958-9008. Jane in Berkeley wants to know if there's a test to determine whether you have ever had COVID in the past. There is. Um, you have to make sure that it's a test that tests for the, a piece of the virus that is not contained in the vaccine or that the vaccine doesn't give you antibodies to. By that, I mean, when you get the vaccine, it gives you antibodies to the spike protein. When you get infected with the entire virus, you develop antibodies to the spike protein, but you also develop antibodies to other parts of the virus. So you wanna make sure that the antibody test that you're getting is looking for um, other parts of the virus, what we call the nucleocapsid. So you want to make sure that it includes the spike protein, but it also includes other antibodies. So that's very important. If you're just testing for a spike protein, it can't differentiate between vaccination and previous infection. The other point is that this virus, well, our immune system in dancing with this virus, it doesn't give us a long duration of antibodies. And that's why we see reinfections. You know, if you get measles and you develop antibodies to that, you're going to have antibodies next year, 20 years from now, and 30 and 40 years from now, likely. With COVID, you'll have antibodies for months, maybe longer than that, maybe a year. But antibody levels decline pretty quickly. 
And so if you got in, if you got COVID two years ago and you do this antibody test, you may not pick up the antibodies to the virus, but you may have been infected in the past. So the only way that this test is really helpful in telling you whether or not you've had COVID is if it's positive. And if it's positive for the nucleocapsid antibodies, those antibodies to another part of the virus, then you have had COVID in the past. So that's where they can be helpful. But let me just posit one other thing. Why bother to do this? You may or not have to pay for it. Um, There are the false negatives that I was just mentioning. And if it's positive, how is that going to change what you do? It may tell you that um, you have this hybrid immunity if you've previously been infected and you've been vaccinated, and that's better. But is that going to really change how careful you are? Um, You have to ask yourself that first. Well, I I imagine someone dealing with a a kind of hard-to-pin-down chronic health condition might want to know if perhaps what they have is long COVID, uh, particularly if if treatments for long COVID get refined. Um, If you didn't know whether you got COVID in the first place, that kind of test might be useful, right? I think that's a really good point, Brian. Uh, If it's positive, um, it would be useful. But if it's negative, again, it doesn't rule out that you had COVID in the past and that your symptoms signs and symptoms could be long COVID. Um, I wouldn't want to put that much value into the test. If you've got symptoms consistent with long COVID, this is where you need to consult with with doctors who are very experienced with COVID and long COVID. All right, let's go to the phone lines. First up, we have Tony in Oakland. Good morning, Tony. Good morning. I tune in late, so if you've answered this question, I'm sorry. What recommendations do you have for 79-year-olds who have been fully vaccinated with the vaccines uh, that were available through Kaiser a month ago? Um, But with regard to the new uh, vaccines coming out, what recommendations do you personally have? Hi, Tony. Um, Tony, let's... Let, let's clarify what you mean by fully vaccinated. So th- this would mean like you've had a total of five shots, your your last one being last fall? I don't know if it was five. It was whatever. Uh, it, it was at least four. I okay. think, and no, your last shot five. was sometime was last fall? Uh, correct. And it was five. I'm remembering now. Yes. Okay. So to, so to Tony's question, Dr. Schwartzberg, first of all, the, the shot they're giving out now is the same exact shot as the one they were giving out last fall. It's the bivalent vaccine, right? Right. Um, and Tony has been diligent about getting those vaccines, so he's done the, the wise thing, in my opinion. Um, Tony, the the um, CDC and the FDA have, as you know, approved the same thing you got, the same vaccine you got last fall um, for use now in people 65 or over. And the reason they did that is because there's some data that suggests that particularly in people 65 and over that these are the folks that get the the, uh, more serious complications hospitalization and death um, and that we know that the immunity declines after the vaccine so there's the, the cdc and the fda have made the same bivalent booster available i would avail yourself of that i did 
um, a week ago last Friday. And I think that it makes sense to give yourself that that boost right now and reevaluate in the fall. Um, it's been six months, it sounds like, at least since you had your last vaccine, I suspect. And uh, that's so this would be a good time to get it. Hope that's helpful, Tony. Let's go to San Francisco for our next call. Susan is on the line. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, and thank you for this program. We've listened uh, since its inception. It's been really valuable. Um, My husband and I are both 70 and over. We've both received initial vaccinations when they first came out. Both of us have had COVID. Both of us have some symptoms of long COVID. Um, After our initial booster last year, we'd like to get our second booster. Our problem in the city of San Francisco is that boosters are no longer available at pharmacies or really anywhere except for some primary physician's offices. In this case, our primary physician is not offering it. Uh, He's in private practice. What would the doctor suggest as an easy way to follow up with uh, a booster. And finally, we've had Moderna, uh, both initially and as boosters. Is it a good idea to try and stick with that same type of booster? Thank you. Hi, Susan. Um, I'm, I was not aware that pharmacies in San Francisco did not have the booster. Um, <clears throat> I had no trouble getting it. I live in the East Bay and I had no trouble getting it here. Um, at one of the major pharmacy chains and my wife used a different pharmacy and she had no trouble getting it so i'm i'm surprised that uh, you're having trouble in san francisco getting it at one of the pharmacies i i would suggest just uh contacting or go online with one of the large pharmacy chains and usually you can sign up for it now maybe you'd have to travel outside of san francisco but i'm surprised at that in terms of the question of I'm sorry that you and your husband both have some long COVID symptoms. Um, In terms of wanting to protect yourself against getting another infection, uh, I think that is very prudent. A lot of people thought that um, if they've had COVID before and they didn't get long COVID, then they couldn't get long COVID if they got infected again. And that, unfortunately, has turned out not to be the case, that a second infection of COVID could precipitate long COVID. So I, I agree with you that you and your husband should avail yourself of this uh, bivalent booster now. Um, The third question you had was about Moderna versus uh, Pfizer, and we have no data to suggest one is better than the other. Um, I've gotten mostly Moderna, but um, I have also gotten Pfizer, and my wife's done the same. So I think it's um, really whatever the pharmacy has. Right now, they both, uh, the data both seem quite comparable. Susan, um, do you do you, do you have internet? Are you, are you comfortable with the web? Yes, yes, we can do that. And we went on all major uh, um, pharmacies to find that out. We have found Pfizer at a couple of places, but my husband feels strongly that it needs to stay Moderna. So I thought that Dr. Schwartzberg might be able to shed more light on that that particular problem. Gotcha. Well, there, there, there is a. Oh, let, let me just jump in before you do, Dr. Schwartzberg. Sure. You know, there is a single site that that's supposed to uh, kind of, you know, combine the search of all locations that have vaccine. Uh, MyTurn.ca.gov. That's California.government. MyTurn.ca.gov, where you just punch in your information, 
how many doses you've had, what, you. what age you are, and they will flag all the places you can schedule. So that, that may turn up places you didn't, uh, it didn't occur to you to search. Go ahead, Dr. Schwartzberg. Thank you. Well, that, that's a great suggestion. I just anecdotally, when I went in to get my um, booster uh, about 10 days ago, the, I said, which one are you, are you giving? She said, only we are, we only have Moderna in, in our location, but the same company had, had Pfizer in other locations, so I would suggest shopping around at different locations. Good luck Thank with you. that, Susan. Uh, let's go down the peninsula for our next call. Lisa is on the line in San Mateo. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to thank you guys for this segment, too. I've been listening since the beginning. Um, I got my bivalent booster on Friday, and I have had five previous shots, all Moderna. And maybe I'm coming out of left field with this, um, but within about... And I've, I've had... You know, body aches and headaches and that, all that from uh, every single shot. This time, the body aches were worse. I had chills. My body was hot to the touch. Um, my skin was burning. And within about maybe five hours or so, um, I started to break out in itchy bumps on my torso and my arms. And I'm still itchy. Um, and I, so is it possible that I, uh, I'm allergic to something that, and it's just come out now after, I mean, on shot number six? Hi, Lisa. Um, the, the answer is yes, it is possible. Um, but this is it's a terribly important question you're asking, obviously, because what do you do next fall? I would suggest that this is something that you may you should consult with your doctor about. Your doctor may not have enough experience to answer that question, and he or she may want to refer you to a physician who specializes in allergic reactions, an allergist, to answer that question for you. Um, the we do. This is not an uncommon story you're, you're, you're telling, and that is that a lot of people um, have varying reactions um, with the same brand over time. So sometimes you don't have much of a reaction. A lot of people have a significant reaction the next time, and it sort of waxes and wanes that way. Another observation is that we do see people getting rashes after the vaccine. Um, it may represent an allergy, um, but it, those types of reactions don't really preclude getting further vaccinations. So again, uh, this is not advice you should be taking from me over the phone, but I think that your question is very important, and I would pursue it like I suggested with your physician first and perhaps with an allergist. Yeah. Um, it's also possible it's something kind of incidental to the contents of the vaccine, right? Like uh, when you're in a medical setting, you're, you're often exposed to a lot of uh, latex and rubber, and those things often cause contact dermatitis or, or can in some people. Absolutely. Usually those are localized. And now, now Lisa said they were on her torso, um, so it would be unlikely the, mm. the latex would have gotten there, but always possible. Absolutely. 
Well, good luck with that, Lisa. Uh, sorry we couldn't be more helpful. And Dr. Swartzberg, thank you for spending another Monday morning with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. Appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.